influential theologians and philosophers of recent times was a German named Friedrich Schleiermacher. In 1787, while studying in an evangelical seminary, Friedrich stunned his devout Christian father when he wrote this in a letter home. I cannot believe that Christ, who called himself the Son of Man, was the true eternal God, and I cannot believe that his death was a vicarious atonement. Kind of a fancy phrase, vicarious atonement, but it means simply that the death of Christ genuinely, actually, and really covered the sins of anyone. Schleiermacher soon left the Moravian seminary where he was studying and was ordained in the German Reformed Church, not so much in spite of his beliefs as because of them. In the late 1700s, all of European Christianity seemed to be infected with the new notion that Christ's death had nothing to do with us in reality. The idea of a God who required a human sacrifice for sin was repugnant. It was outdated. And the notion of Christ laying down His life in our place was inconceivable to the enlightened thinker of the modern era. It was a thought that needed to be buried along with the God of the Old Testament. It was Jesus' life on which we should focus, not his death. He was our moral example, not a sacrificial substitute. So under Schleiermacher's very strong intellectual influence, and he was a man of tremendous capacities, but under his influence, American Christianity was deeply infected with the notion that Christ's death was not substantially different from the death of any other martyr. The message was loud and clear from the establishment, and many American churches bought into the thinking, let's bury the death angle on Jesus. Let's get over this infatuation with His death. Salvation has to do with our baptism, with our works, with the sacraments of the church. The death of Christ serves as an example to us, but nothing more. Well, here we go again in this church remembering the death of Jesus Christ. And I think by way of just brief defense, let it be noted that we gather around this table to commemorate the death of Jesus Christ because the Lord of the church, Jesus Himself, commanded it. He called us to routinely remember His death, not to forget about it and not to assign it with the death of other martyrs. This is a memorial meal that Christ instituted so that we would not forget the importance of his death. We would be, in in the right sense of the word, forced to remember it until he comes. He calls us to remember the death of Christ precisely because he was not just another martyr. There are large sections of scripture with which people like Schleiermacher had the penknife out of the text. They had to cut out of their Bibles teaching that Christ's death was uniquely significant and had everything to do with us. So do we hear the enlightened speakers of our day, of past times and their influence on this day, or do we go to the text of Scripture and take it for what it says? 
Romans chapter 5 reminds us of the immense significance of the death of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, Paul says in verse 5 that God has poured out His love into our hearts. And then he goes on in verse 6 to explain how God has done this through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 6, you see at just the right time. Verse 5, God poured out His love into our hearts. Verse 6, now you see. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice again verse 6, the order of the Greek text places the emphasis here upon the death of Christ. We might read it something like this. You see Christ, when we were still powerless, just at the right time, being ungodly, died. Christ died. In other words, God has poured out His love in our hearts, verse 5. Now in verses 6-8, through we learn the nature of that love as revealed in Scripture. Not simply in the example of Christ, but revealed in His death. Notice carefully these three phrases which Paul uses to describe the nature of God's love at just the right time. Inexplicably, the NIV reverses the phrases here in order. I don't know why and I don't know that it accomplishes anything either good or bad necessarily, but this is actually the second phrase in the original text. But at, at any rate, at just the right time. And we need to ask the question here, who is setting the time? The reference is obviously to the sovereign plan of God. God freely chose the place at which the sacrifice of His Son, at the place to sacrifice His Son to death on the timeline of salvation history. God chose the time. We just read it earlier. Galatians 4.4, when the time had fully come. When the time was ripe. When the time was ready. When the earth was ready. When God's plan dictated, He sent His Son at just the right time, in the fullness of time. The second phrase there in verse 6, when we were still powerless, as one um, Greek scholar puts it, this is a gentle euphemism for our utter impotence. When we were powerless, we were utterly incapable. God's love did not reach us in a state of strength so as to nudge us forward just a little bit. Jesus did not help us to help ourselves. That's not why He came. Jesus died for us when we were utterly helpless. Some seem to have the thinking that sin is really an issue. To picture it, it's a matter of us falling down on the ground. And we've kind of skinned our knee and beat up our elbows a little bit, but shaking our head at this hard fall, Jesus dies and comes along and in that event kind of picks us up off of the ground and helps us get back on our feet and get our head cleared and get on our way morally. But this phrase says that we were powerless. But Jesus does for us as much a much better picture would be that we have been injured to the degree that we're completely incapacitated. Our legs are paralyzed and will never walk again. And we have been in this condition of paralysis for many, many years. 
And we know that no matter how hard we could possibly try, no matter what therapy could accomplish for us, we've done everything possible through time to walk. And we know that it's never going to happen. It's in that kind of spiritual state that Jesus comes along and reaches down his hand and lifts us up. And we feel the strength come into our legs and we walk because of what he has done. He died for us when we were powerless. He didn't nudge us along. He didn't help us out to be a little better than we were. He helped us when we were powerless. In fact, that third phrase says, on behalf of the ungodly. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Our weakness was of a moral nature. We were weak in an ungodly way. God was not moved to save us because of the inherent value that He saw in us or of any good that commended us to Him. God saw us in our moral depravity and His love moved Him to act. In verse 7, Paul looks to human experience as a contrast to the kind of love that God demonstrates to us. Verse 7, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. The first scenario here in verse 7, someone dying for a righteous man. The Greek reads, not merely with the, the idea here of rarely, not merely with the idea of infrequency, but with great difficulty is involved in the word also. It's hard to die on behalf of a righteous man. It's very difficult, and it happens very rarely. We could add the time idea there too. But there's a second scenario here in verse 7. The second part of the verse, he, he kind of heightens that a bit and says, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. I think the righteous man here is someone who has stands in right place. They've not done anything wrong in particular. They're a good person only in the sense of moral standing, but the good person brings to our attention someone with, with deep moral beauty in their life, someone that we love, someone that we appreciate, someone that we look to as a model, as an example, as someone that is worthy of our attention. For such a person, someone might dare to die. It just might be that someone might have the courage to willingly give their life in behalf of of an individual like that. It's extremely rare, but it might happen. In contrast to that, however, verse 8, God demonstrates His own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. God demonstrates to us the nature of His love by giving His Son to die for us, not because we were godly, but while we were yet sinners. It was in our fallen hopeless, immoral condition that God chose to love us. Someone might even dare to give their life for a good man. But when is the last time that you heard of a healthy man having his heart removed so it could be given to a hopeless and depraved inmate in the county jail? That just doesn't happen in human experience. We might have compassion for dying criminals. We might invest time in helping them, hoping to rescue and aid and bring them along, but we don't die in their place and give them our lives. 
But God demonstrates His love to us by loving us when we were weak, when we were ungodly, and when we were sinners. And I think this is what's at the heart of the charges of those who would attack the understanding that we have that Scripture teaches about the death of Christ. They've never really seen themselves as fallen sinners. And therefore, the concept of a Christ dying in their place to pay their sin is offensive. And so liberals discourage people with talk of depravity. Or discourage people about talking about depravity. They speak, matter of fact, I heard a, a man on the radio just a couple of weeks ago chiding me, not me by name, but chiding my types, saying, every week people come to your church and you tell them they're sinners. I think that's the objection of someone who does not really know God. However much that man may know about the Bible, and however much Schleiermacher and others, liberals from Europe, from America, and through time past, however much they may know of God's Word, they've never met the author. To meet God is to know I'm a sinner. To meet God is to know that I've fallen. But to meet God, to know Him in the person of Jesus Christ, is to come to understand what He has done in His love about where I really am. And I ask to those who would critique our teaching about sin and the Bible's teaching about sin, which child appreciates the genuine love of his parents more? The child who is always told, no matter what he does, that he is a good child. Always told, you're good, you're good, you're good. Does that child really come to appreciate the love of his parents? Or is it, secondly, the child who is faithfully corrected and helped to see his inherent sinfulness? I think when such a child who knows his parents sees through him, realizes that his parents understand that he does struggle doing what's right, realizes that he has parents who are willing to say no, and willing to correct, that child has an opportunity to begin to understand the meaning of love and grace. And so it is, I think, with our Heavenly Father. God demonstrates His love to His children, not by standing there and telling us that what we know is not true, that we are all really pretty good, and it's just the other people around us that make us twisted. God stands rather before us and says, I know what you know. I know that you are a sinner. But while in your sin, I saw you, and I died for you. That's amazing grace. And I thank God as long as I live, to the day I die, I'm never going to apologize for singing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. When I sing that song, I don't get a sense in my heart of, oh, I'm being beat up again. I get a sense in my heart of the love and the grace of God. He did save a wretch. That doesn't hurt my self-esteem. That encourages my praise of him. I exult in him because he saved me when I was a wretch. He loved me when I was his enemy. The right view of Christ's death gives us a sense of wonder, of God's love. It doesn't lead us to want to protect the reputation of fallen people.
verse 9. Let's move on from here. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? So we notice first of all in verses 6 and following, verses 6 through 8, that Christ's death demonstrates the nature of God's love. We notice here that Christ's death guarantees the future of God's people. This death is significant to us. Verses 9 and 10 return to the concept of hope mentioned in verse 5. Christ's death not only demonstrates God's love, but it secures our hope of eternal salvation. Verses 9 and 10 are parallel statements that is, verse 10 is parallel to verse 9, demonstrating the inherent hope in Christ's death by arguing from the greater to the lesser. Notice this argument, from the greater to the lesser. Verse 9, since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? In other words, Christ's death in our place paid the penalty of our sin. And so now, in consequence of Christ's death, we are justified, we are forgiven, we stand before God judicially guiltless in Christ. That doesn't mean a whole lot to people who want to argue that they're not sinners, but to those who know they are, that means a lot. We stand judicially guiltless in Christ. Now, since that is true, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him. In other words, we were sinners deserving nothing but the wrath of God, and in that state, Jesus Christ came and died in our behalf. He secured for us as sinners a justified standing before God. And obviously, His death secures for us the guarantee of salvation from God's wrath, His final judgment of sinners. How is this accomplished? Notice again very carefully. How is this accomplished? Verse 9, by his blood. Justified by means of his death. So arguing from the greater to the lesser, Paul says it's hard for the ungodly to be justified by Christ. Hard for them to be justified, but Christ accomplished this by his death. It only follows that we will be spared from God's wrath. It's a hard thing to pardon a prisoner. There's a lot of people that have a vested interest in that prisoner being right where they are. Let's say that it's a murderer, somebody that's taken the life of another individual. You don't pardon such a person easily because there are family members that are suffering. There's a society that is suffering and there are even jail keepers that very much want that person to stay right where they are. That's a hard thing to do. But once that prisoner has been granted pardon, it's, it's, it's a given that they're going to walk out of prison. It's just a matter of paperwork. That's the idea, the reasoning that we find here. And verse 10 restates that very same reasoning. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, that's the hard part, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through His life? We were enemies. It is certainly true that in our sin we counted God as our enemy, but I think the context here indicates that God counted us as His enemy. While God was reckoning us as His enemies because of our sin, God is reckoning us as the objects of His holy wrath. In that reckoning, He reconciles. As He sees us that way, 
He reconciles us to Himself through the death of His Son. So enmity was replaced by friendship. How did this happen? The death of Christ. And again then, arguing from the lesser to the greater, since Christ's death reconciles His enemies, how much more? Second part of verse 10. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? We've been reconciled to God. We will be saved. So as we gather around this table, we remember Christ's death, a death that guarantees our final salvation. God did not sacrifice His Son for our forgiveness so that we might fall from grace and end up in hell. Those who believe find in the forgiveness secured by Christ's death in the past the security of our hope for the future. Christ's death demonstrates the nature of God's love. It guarantees the future of God's people. It's a settled event. As I come before this table, I remember that Christ's death secures for me a home in heaven in His presence. Thirdly, in verse 11, we realize that Christ's death generates the praise of God's name. That's why we've been singing this morning. We haven't been singing this morning simply because it's the thing to do. Because we're some kind of choir in the making here. We've been singing this morning for a very specific reason. Verse 11 indicates that here. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice in God. We rejoice in this reconciliation. Not only so, in other words, not only will we be saved by union with life, of, in, 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 with, union, uh, with Christ and His life, but we rejoice in God. We were enemies of God. Sinners, weak, ungodly. But when we came to faith in the meaning of Christ's death, when we came to embrace Christ's substitutionary death for the forgiveness of our sins, we were transformed. Hear it. We were transformed from blasphemers to singers. I know the blaspheming of this lost world doesn't always seem necessarily all that obvious, but listen, if you know Christ as your personal Savior, you have been transformed from a blasphemer to a singer. And sometimes that blaspheming just comes along in the terms of using God's name in vain. I don't watch much television at all when it comes to these sitcoms and all this stuff, but as you're moving your way through the basketball tournament and it's a timeout, you hear... What phrase more than any other, if I'm right, oh my God, right? It is just a phrase that is on the lips of Americans. Why is that? It's blasphemy. To use the name of God to express my own anger, surprise, frustration, or even just pure giddiness. We use the name of God for our own purposes. Because in our hearts, He's not God, we are. We live in a blasphemous world. And we were blasphemers without God. In that simple illustration, as well as in many others, without Christ, we are oriented against God. It may not be real obvious, it may not be an outward rebellion that everyone else can see, but there's a rebellion in the heart from which we've been rescued. And what is the transformation of tongue. The transformation is from one who uses the name of God in vain, who curses, who does not honor God with their words. It's replaced, rather, with songs of praise.
with songs that lift up His name and honor His name and live our lives in a way that sings His praises. Notice here in verse 11 that we rejoice in God. He's the object of our praise through Jesus. In other words, through the one in whom we've now been, have received reconciliation. Once the enemies of God, Christ's death has reconciled us to Him, and now we rejoice in God. Note the word now there. Again, there's a time issue here. Not only, this, not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've, we have now received reconciliation. In other words, there was a time when we were sinners, when we were ungodly, when we were alienated from God. But things are different now. There's a new day. Do you get the now? Do you get that word now? Does it make sense to you? Can you give evidence from your life experience that there was a then which has been replaced by a now? Do you understand that there was an actual time in your life when you were in fact alienated from God and His enemy and a hopeless sinner? But that at some point in time, the benefits of Christ's death were applied personally to your life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what Paul means when he says, now you're reconciled? One of the greatest proofs that you have been genuinely saved is the presence of joy in your heart that longs to sing His praises. Now, you may not be very musical. Maybe it's a benefit to everyone that you don't sing out loud very often. Sometimes that's a case with us, but there's a song in your heart. There's a joy in your heart that desires to magnify and elevate and praise the name of God. For those that are musical, sometimes that can also be a hindrance. We just like to sing because we like to sing. Is there a song that really wells up within you that longs to bring glory to the name of Christ? That's an evidence that there's been a change. Without that evidence, you need to carefully consider your relationship with Christ today. When you contemplate the death of Christ and how it demonstrates the nature of God's undeserved love, do you want to boast about God when you consider the salvation Christ's death secures for you in eternity, does your heart fill with joy and anticipation of the hope and the coming day when you will be with Him so that it wants to sing now what it's going to sing throughout eternity? Put very simply, does the meaning of Christ's death make you happy? Does it make you sing? Does it make you rejoice? I think the reason... So many, so many have written books about the unimportance of Jesus Christ, death. We find it in magazines. We find it, you can find it in Time and Newsweek. Anytime there's an article on the death of Christ or the life of Christ, you can see it all explained away. Why it doesn't mean what the Bible says that it means. Why are there so many that have lived careers to explain to us why Christ's death is not important to us? It's because there's no song in their soul. They're backpedaling to protect because there's a guilty conscience that's never been satisfied, that's never been put at rest. So there's no song. There's just argumentation. I hope that you come to this table today with no argumentation. I hope that you come with a desire to sing. And I would encourage you here, if there is not a desire to sing, there is not a desire to know God and you're not sure that you are related to Him, don't participate with us here. Now you might say, oh, just a little juice and a little cracker. What, 
difference would that make? There's something more going on here than just that. There is a participation as a body of believers in the work that Jesus Christ has done for us. If he's not done that work in your life, don't play the part of the hypocrite and just do what everyone else is doing. Come to terms with who Jesus is and what he's done for you before. If you know Christ as Savior, we invite you to this table. If you have demonstrated that you know him by immersion as a believer, we encourage you to come if your heart is right with him. And if it's not, don't worry about participating, not joining with us. Make sure that your heart is right before the Lord as we come to prayer, as we come to this time of the Lord's table. Let's prepare our hearts to thank the Lord for his death in our behalf to provide for the forgiveness of our sins.